Welcome to Babel, Translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. This week on Babel, John speaks with Jason Rezaian about Iran and what Americans get wrong about Iranians. Then, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about what Iranians get wrong about Americans and how misperceptions affect decision-making in the Middle East. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Jason Rezaian is an American-Iranian journalist. He grew up in Northern California and moved to Iran to report in 2009. He joined the Washington Post in 2012, and in 2014, he was arrested and held in Evin prison for 544 days, charged with espionage. When he was released in 2016, some argued his whole imprisonment was intimately tied to U.S.-Iran negotiations. In addition to his work as a journalist, he's executive producer of Bring Them Home, a documentary coming out next month based on the case of Imad Jargi, one of five Americans now being held in Iran. Jason, welcome to Babel. Thanks, John. It's good to be here. When you went to Iran as a journalist in 2009, why did you go? That's the kind of the question of my life. I had been toiling as a freelance journalist for a few years after college. And in 2001, I was able to visit Iran for the first time. My dad had been born and raised there, moved to the U.S. in the late 50s to go to college, maintained a close relationship with the country up until the revolution. And in the late 90s, when Mohammad Khatami, the reformist, became president, the doors were sort of reopened to people like my dad, who hadn't felt comfortable traveling there for 20 years. So I first had that opportunity when I was 25 to go there, and I was just struck by what a fascinating, lovable, intense, chaotic, screwed up, and old place this was that happened to be the home to an incredibly young and vibrant population. So through my travels between 2001 and 2007, I got to know the place, I got to know the language, I wrote a fair number of pieces that were published in various newspapers and magazines. And then when the financial crisis happened in 2008, I had been working between trips in my dad's Persian rug shop in Northern California. I opened my own shop just off of Union Square. That didn't last very long, as you can imagine. So when I closed the doors in the spring of 2009, I had in my mind that, okay, I'm 33 years old. I'm facing financial ruin. My only skill really besides selling Persian rugs is constructing a sentence and stringing a few of those together. What's the one thing I want to do? Where do I want to be? And I just thought to myself, Tehran is it. That's where my head and my heart are. Let's give it a go. So you're a kid from Marid County and your dad's Iranian. You go to Iran. This is your first time really living under an authoritarian government. As a reporter who suddenly has to engage with a very different kind of government, what did you learn about the government of Iran that you hadn't known before? Just trying to get the permission to travel there took several years. When my dad made that first trip in 1998, I applied for a visa and then was told that as the offspring of an Iranian male, you have to get a 
Iranian citizenship, going through all the bureaucratic hoops. And then you arrive there for the first time at the airport in Tehran, and there's pictures of Ayatollah Khomeini and Khamenei looking down at you from every direction. And there are heavy military and police presence everywhere you look. But you also quickly realize that the people living in this place have been dealing with this for a long time, right? Not that they have fully accepted or approve of the way they are ruled over, but they know the score and they know how to navigate it. Very quickly, they realize that behind closed doors, it's a very different place. And I think that has a lot to do with the culture of Iran dating back centuries. And part of the reason why this system that is so unrepresentative of the ways of thinking and being of so many Iranians has been able to exist and stay in power for so long. It's kind of an unspoken deal between the regime and the people. We're not going to get involved in your life behind closed doors. You're not going to get involved in the way we run this country. And when you sort of had to engage with the government, did they seem to wink and nod and acknowledge that they have their game and there's something else going on? Or do they try to maintain the facade that it's all in order? Both. Depends on who you're talking to. Depends on what day you're talking to them. Depends on what setting you're talking to them in. So there is this kind of general facade that we've got it all under control and we're not facing any sort of existential threats from the inside or the outside. But as I mentioned to a Biden administration official the other day, sometimes the more confident these guys sound in public, the more they're trembling in their boots. They're known for overplaying a bad hand. I've played a lot of poker with Iranian guys over the years. You end up winning or losing? I won a lot when I realized that the guy that goes all in all the time usually doesn't really have much <laughs> in his hand. So, I mean, you mentioned you talked to Biden administration officials. What do you think they're missing about the way the Iranian government is approaching the nuclear talks? The folks in this administration are same folks who engineered JCPOA 1 in 2015. My concern is that the internal dynamics of Iran are very different than they were at that moment. There were people who were very hopeful that would single an opening with the U.S. and it would not only create trade opportunities, it would lessen tensions. I think it did that temporarily, but as with other things in the Obama years, they got to it very late. It was literally the last year that they were in office that the nuclear deal was intact and being enforced. It's a moot point now when they get out there and say, well, you know, Trump took us out of the deal and that's why we're in the situation we're in. That's true, but that doesn't, doesn't change the facts on the ground. You have way more protests inside Iran. The economic situation for the average Iranian is terrible right now. The middle class is shrinking very quickly. People are becoming impoverished. And then a small class of very well-connected people are getting fabulously wealthy, which is a sign that the sanctions aren't actually working that well, right? If the people who control the levers of power are getting richer and richer off the books, means they're able to 
sell their oil and control other illicit markets outside the purview of sanctions. And I think our approach to Iran has never really taken into account the sentiments of the moment of Iranian people. I think we'd be wise to invest more in that. We cut off a lot of those pathways during the Trump years with a travel ban. Travel ban officially was lifted as soon as Biden came into office, but for a variety of reasons, there isn't that flow of Iranians coming back and forth that we had for years and years. So that sort of human intelligence and understanding of the circumstances on the ground is very limited. So I think that there is two problems. One, the issue of not really knowing how to engage with ordinary Iranians who might want to mount an opposition, right? And two, a bit of a lack of imagination. And I don't think that's a Biden problem. I think that's a Washington problem. Do you think there's a way to for the U.S. to create a circumstance where more Iranians would take action and would be effective? I think there probably was over much of the last 40 years. But unfortunately, the excuse that Iranians would make is that anytime we try and make an opposition or gather, they snuff us out. Right? And there was the they, green movement where they shot at people in the streets. And that's happening still, right? And, you know, there are protests over, over drought, over teachers' wages, over truckers' unions. And anyone who is honest and works in the sanctions cultivation industry will tell you that the whole point of sanctions is to create those circumstances. It's rarely to get an authoritarian government to change its ways. It's intended to get the little guy to be so pissed off that he rises up in arms. Well, the point is they don't have arms, right? The IRGC and the security forces, the besiege, police, government, army, they're the ones that have the guns. And you don't see the kind of changing of sides and defection that everybody looks for as an indicator. So I think, yes, there comes a day when people are so hungry and so desperate that they're willing to go out in the street and take a bullet. I think that what would have been better would have been to maintain communication and a flow of people going back and forth. I honestly believe that if you had that nuclear deal in place in 2016 and it was still in place now, we wouldn't be having a lot of these conversations. The doors of commerce would have opened things up in a lot of ways that the regime couldn't put a lid on. And I don't think that the Islamic Republic is nearly as efficient as, say, the Chinese regime is or even Soviets were at keeping a lid on pressure. But also, I just don't think they have the discipline. They will eat themselves. There is enough internal strife within that regime that these guys will take themselves down. It's a matter of time. And I think we, we've pretty well established that theocracy in the modern world doesn't work for very long. Iran is the shining example of this is where Islamic governance was born in modern times. It'll probably die there first, too. And in some ways, it's already dead. As I said, people are living their own lives behind closed doors. Those lives that they're living behind closed doors are getting more and more difficult. So you were living in Iran during the Arab Spring. Iranians were thinking about, talking about the fall of authoritarian governments. What was that discourse about? I think that a lot of people who were looking at it thought of it as a model for them. 
which is probably precisely why Ahmadinejad and his government very quickly came out and, you know, said that they were the inspiration <laughs> for the Arab Spring, you know? And I think on the flip side of that, the people who were behind the Green Movement would have said we were the inspiration for the Arab Spring. I think that they were intimately connected. It was early in the Obama years. There were moments and messages being sent publicly and privately that if you want a new day in your region, America is open to that idea. Unfortunately, they didn't really follow through on that. I think the story of the Middle East of this millennium so far and U.S. relations with the Middle East is one of missed opportunities, missed signs, and unfortunately, disastrous results. So let's talk about signs. When Javad Zarif was the foreign minister of Iran, one of the things he always loved talking about was how to use negotiations over prisoner exchange as a way to build confidence and lead toward broader talks and broader reconciliation between the U.S. and Iran. Why do you think the Iranian foreign minister kept talking about prisoner exchange. And is the current government thinking about prisoner exchange the same way that the Rouhani government thought about prisoner exchange? I think that their proclamations about prisoners, the taking of Western citizens, oftentimes dual nationals. Which they don't recognize. They say they don't recognize. They don't recognize you until it's the day to make a trade, right? You're Iranian all the way up until the U.S. government says, okay, we're going to make a deal for Jason or Siamak or Mora Tabaz or whoever. You are one of theirs until they need you to be on the other side. Going back to 1979, you have hostage taking as a key element of Iran's foreign policy. In all of my years of communicating with Iranians, in government and outside, no one ever really seemed to understand, one, the mess that the hostage crisis of 1979 and 1981 created for Iran. They don't think that their anti-Americanism is taken as seriously as it is you know, burning the stars and stripes and death to America and all this sort of stuff. This is just words. This is just rhetoric. Well, you know, I'm here to tell you that words and rhetoric matter, right? And I think that they've gotten used to using this as a tool. I believe that it's really not been that effective for them. It's been effective in specific situations. But if you look at the long-term reputational damage to Iran of taking the embassy hostage in 1979 and then continuing to do this over and over again and acting as though, no, 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 these are issues of national security. These prisoners are people who've been accused of and convicted of crimes against our national security, wink, wink. Nobody takes it seriously, right? And I think, John, if we were to poll Iranian officials, in the current administration and in the Rouhani administration, you would find that a majority of them wish that elements of their regime in the IRGC especially stop doing this because it gums up the diplomatic process and makes it harder for them to operate in the international sphere. So how does the U.S. get the Iranian government to stop playing this game? To me, that's the important question. I've been talking to people in this administration, the previous administration, other governments, the UK, Canada, France, 
I really believe that it has to be a multinational approach to the issue to say, hey, look, you take an American, you take a Canadian, you take an Australian, you take a Brit, German, French person hostage. It's like taking one of ours hostage. I think a lot of people believe that you can't make the issue, the fate of a single person or a group of people, a sticking point in a negotiation. I would argue that you really can't. This should be the sort of issue that if a government takes part in doing this, it should put a pause on all other actions. But you can't get that kind of buy-in unless all governments agree on it. You need a convention on it the way we have one on chemical weapons and other issues. There are currently 40-plus Americans being held as leverage by other governments. Five in Iran, more than a dozen in China, several in in Russia, Venezuela, Cuba, Egypt, Turkey. That number has been slowly rising over the last decade or so. What happens when it becomes 200 people? What happens when it becomes 500 people? What is the U.S. government going to do when there are hundreds of our citizens being held as leverage against our interests? I'm going to tell you what they're going to do. They're going to tell you that when you travel outside of the U.S., you're on your own. And you and I both grew up with this mentality that I'm American, you can't do that to me. We were young guys traveling around the world. That was kind of true. Now it's not. And it's going to get worse and worse and worse unless we deal with it. And I know in private conversations with people in government, they understand this. They take it seriously, but they don't have creative ideas about how to deter it. But there are like three levels of U.S. concerns about Iran arguably four. You know, one is the nuclear stuff, and you can either argue that ballistic missiles are part of that or not. A second is the hostage-taking piece. A third is Iran's regional behavior, which relies on plausible deniability and the use of proxies. That's another set of issues where the Iranians say, oh, no, it's not us. Let's talk about what we might do. We'll see how we can help you. And you could argue that the whole world has an interest in that. But then you have the problem of, do you prioritize among these issues? Do you bring them all together and then say, well, it's too hard? I mean, how, how would you, as you've been in the belly of the beast with the bad guys in the Iranian system, what has that told you about how we should think about Iran's regional behavior, its use of proxies, and plausible deniability as an offensive set of Iranian behaviors? Look, I think the plausible deniability is no longer that plausible in most of these cases. But I also think that, as we saw in Iraq a few months ago, I don't think that they have the kind of control over their proxies as they did 10 years ago. And when there was the attempted assassination on the prime minister and the current commander of the Quds Force traveled to Baghdad to say that wasn't us. To me, that was a great sign of weakness. Qasem Soleimani was never going to show up and say, hey, you know, we had nothing to do with that. Whether they did or didn't, he liked to have that element of surprise. You have the Houthi attacks on the UAE. On the UAE, exactly. Which may or may not have Iranian fingerprints. Look, they certainly have some fingerprints. I mean, you know, they get the weapons from them. But, you know, do they order the strikes? I doubt it. The UAE and Iran need each other, right? Like that, you know, this is one of the, the under-discussed situations in that part of the world. I mean, you know, the UAE and Iran 
have a deep and important relationship financially and strategically. Billions, billions of dollars of trade. Going back centuries. The other piece of this domestically in Iran is the terrible situation of Iran's economy. And so we have to look at what are the pressure points on Iran? We've found a lot of those when it comes to financial networks and blocking off access to funds. But what are the incentives that we have to offer them to change course? There was a moment during the Rouhani and Zarif years, they were very much bought into the idea that Iran's fate, the Islamic Republic's fate, depended on having more open relations with the rest of the world. But by helping to open those markets and open those relationships and open those pathways of people, I was betting that the Iranian people would be able to rip the lid off of authoritarianism. Now I'm not so sure. You know, now I, I think that the situation is much more of a powder keg than it was in 2015. And I think that the worse the status of the regime internally, the worse their hold on power is internally, the more they're going to lash out regionally. And the more they're going to lash out against individuals, the more that they're going to flout international law and let their thuggery get the best of them. And I think we see that happening. How optimistic are you that we're going to end up in a better place in five years than we are now? Less optimistic than I was five years ago. But I also think that the amount of information that we have from within Iran has never been as much as we have right now because of social media, because of news channels that focus solely on Iran and have cultivated pretty good access. And also a willingness by a lot of people inside Iran to talk more openly publicly than they would have in the past. I think the key, and this has been the key going back 40 years, is whether or not we pay attention to what those people are saying. And I don't think we can honestly say, going back to 1977, when Jimmy Carter went to Tehran for New Year's and stood up and gave a toast to the Shah and said that there's no more stable country in the world and no better friend of the United States than Iran, we haven't been paying attention to what the Iran street has been saying at any point in the last 40-something years. If we don't start now, I don't think there's any hope. Jason Rezaian. Thank you very much for joining us on Babel. Thank you, John. Next, John, Will, and I continue the conversation about what Iranians get wrong about Americans and how misperceptions affect the decision-making in the Middle East. So Rezaian talked a lot about what Americans get wrong about Iran and Iranians when there's not this free flow of people or ideas between the two countries. But flipping that on its head, what do you think Iranians get wrong about Americans? It's interesting because there used to be a lot of Iranians in the United States and Javad Zarif, the former foreign minister, got his PhD in the United States. I think there is first a sort of cutoff in when Iranian government officials cease to have experience in the United States. They had a cohort that had that experience. I think that cohort is largely aged out of office. The other thing going on is that there is so much media available from the United States that there's almost a false intimacy. People often think they understand more than they do. For people who spend a lot of time trying to understand Washington, I think Washington is confusing, especially to people in the middle of it. But there's a way that the narratives that a news media puts out make it all seem clearer. And I think that that sense 
that people have of, I know what really goes on in the United States is often a little bit skewed. I remember this very strange conversation I had with Bashar al-Assad's father-in-law in London, and he sort of shook his finger at me and said, you know, you can say all these nice things, but I know what Americans really think. I watch Fox News. And that's what some Americans think, but what you need to understand is what the dynamics are. And I think people often think they understand better than they do. And there's a way in which that, I say that, in, that perceived intimacy can be misleading. I will say that I somewhat experienced that. Not having visited the United States for the first 24 years of my life, I thought I had a pretty good sense of what America was like because I consumed a huge amount of media about the US. And I mean, a lot of that was kind of entertainment and TV shows, and certainly California or New York, for that matter, does not represent the whole of the US. But I will say that there is a feeling that, yeah, we see so much in the rest of the world about the US and so much American media and whatnot, that that can translate into a sense that you know how people even go about their daily lives. And I've certainly then found, having lived here now for seven years, I was wrong in a lot of ways. And then thinking about this and also what Resign said about how Iran kind of miscalculates how the U.S. government views some of its actions, like taking prisoners and the idea that Iranians really don't understand the damage that anti-Americanism and flag burning in the streets does. Why do you think Iran makes that miscalculation and that miscalculation, how does it affect how Iran and the U.S. engage? I've thought about this a lot. I think there are so many Iranian officials who think that American hostility is a constant, not a variable, that there's nothing they can do that's going to keep the United States from trying to undermine the Islamic Republic. And given that piece of the calculus, there's an instinct to show they're not afraid, show that they're willing to stand up to the United States. I think it's partly they think there's no cost. And partly they think there is a benefit by showing how brave they are. And I agree with Resign that there's a way in which this reinforces exactly the negative narrative that so many people have in the United States. And it's almost impossible to find somebody with a positive narrative about Iran. And the absence of a positive narrative isn't only about the Iranian government. I think there are a lot of Americans who think the Iranian people who are so willing to go in the streets and shout death to America and burn American flags are hostile to the United States. What Rezaian found when he went and talked to Iranians is that sentiment isn't there at all, but it's certainly the perception of it is prevalent in the U.S. Do you think it could also have to do with the idea that Iran acts quite differently for different audiences and that these actions are intended for different audiences? In a previous podcast episode that we did with Karim Sajadpour, he said that Iran only needs about 10 to 20 percent of the population to be true believers in the revolution to keep going. And I wonder if by having these chants in the street, that's sort of mobilizing them and is not really intended for a U.S. audience. But then on the flip side, then we have really quite skilled Iranian diplomats who Iran intends to be the spokespeople for Iran, people like Javad Zarif, who when you hear talk sounds, I think, really quite reasonable, even likable. For a long time, I think he was a, a very effective foreign minister for Iran in putting forward this different face, a much more reasonable one. And I wonder if they're sort of intending these actions to be for different audiences. I remember a fascinating conversation I had with Elaine Shalino, who was a 
reporter for the New York Times. She'd been going back and forth to Iran for many years, wrote a book about Iran. She was there when rioting broke out, I think in 2009. And it was really unclear where things were going. There was blood in the streets. There were protests. She felt very unsafe and unsure. And what made her feel safer and more confident was when people started going out in the streets and chanting death to America. And you look and say, well, why is that? And she said, because that was all scripted. Everybody knew that wasn't real. Everybody knew what their role was. There was a time when there was genuine rioting and nobody knew what was going to happen. And her sense as an American there was there was nothing so reassuring as hearing Iranians go out in the street and saying death to America because it had gone right into a groove where she felt absolutely no fear. I guess thinking about the popular uprisings that happened in 2009 and kind of what Jason Rezaian said about the Arab Spring and that the U.S. was unwilling to kind of follow through on the commitments or the rhetoric that it had during the time. How do you think that had a chilling effect both in Iran and across the region on whether or not these popular movements even spring up and the effect that they can have? Because Rezaian said it's pretty hard for regular Iranians today, but we haven't seen that kind of mass movement. Well, I definitely think there's been learning in terms of popular movements across the Middle East. And I think the ones that we saw in 2018 had learned some of the lessons from the Arab Spring in terms of how to mobilize, how to keep going and whatnot. But then also standing here now in 2022, very few of these movements have uh, had real success. And so I think there's maybe some of the lessons you could take from that is that it's really, really tough to change a political system and to really have a tangible change like that. But I also think what Jason Rezaian said about how much sort of Iranians are, are suffering is instructive here. It's really difficult to go out onto the streets and protest when you are struggling to get by. I mean, look at somewhere like Lebanon today. People are busy trying to find medicines that they need, perhaps trying to get fuel to refill their cars. I think you can look at it and you can say, how are the people not on the streets all the time when conditions are so awful? And it's actually more when conditions begin to improve that then you're more likely to have these people genuinely going out to demand change because their expectations are changing. So it may be that Iranians are suffering so much at the moment that it's hard to find kind of the motivation to go out onto the streets when they're just trying to get by. But the other thing is, realistically, what the American president says is something that people in Washington help inform, but nobody really has a huge life or death stake in it. When you're talking about a decision of whether to protest, whether or not to protest, whether to try to forcibly put down protests or not forcibly put down protests, you're not only talking in many cases about your own livelihood, but the future of your children and grandchildren. You have to live with the consequences, positive and negative. And that's just a totally different calculation. I mean, the United States can sort of give vague indications. The United States can help encourage. But at the end of the day, you can't lose sight of the fact that the real decisions are being made by the people who have to live with the real consequences. And very few of those people are in Washington. So staying on this kind of stream of public opinion and public movements, I'm kind of struck by what Jason Rezaian said about how the U.S. just really doesn't know where regular Iranians are at. We can see protests from afar. We can see protests against environmental impacts, public utilities, and the economy. 
but we really don't know what's going on in their minds. So I guess in a state like Iran, how should the U.S. approach that? And does public opinion even matter in an authoritarian state like that that doesn't really care about public opinion or doesn't seem to care about public opinion? I think it is incredibly difficult to get a sense of public opinion and when you're not there, when you're not spending or a significant amount of time in a country. I think it is really, really hard because you have a limited number of conversations with people and you never know if the people you're talking to are adjusting what they say to you for maybe very real security concerns or just because they say what they think you're expecting to hear or what you might be wanting to hear. So I think getting a sense of public opinion is tough. Perhaps this is a slightly different question, but thinking about what that can tell us, public opinion, I think there is a danger that as an outsider, you can overinterpret what people tell you. And I guess I can think of an example from my own research in this, which is when we were in Jordan before the pandemic, almost everyone that I spoke to expressed a real sense that they were struggling, that they were in economically struggling, struggling to find jobs, were quite dissatisfied with the system, partly the government, partly the sort of broader system. And so I think you could interpret all of this and say, aha, Jordan is on the point of collapse. There's all this anger that's bubbling away. And I think people have been saying that for a long time, and then nothing happens. So I think there's a degree to which you may end up over-interpreting what you perceive of, as public opinion or public grievances or widespread grievances. So I guess it's a case of sort of contextualizing what you're hearing. And, and as I said, I think that's really difficult to do when you have more limited conversations with people who are there. But even when you have conversations with people who are there, the question is, who do you have access to talking to? As, as you say, very rightly, what do they tell you and how do they shape what they tell you and how might it differ from what they think. I remember having conversations with Israeli diplomats in October 2010, and I was expressing my belief that there was more serious opposition to Gamal Mubarak than people widely perceived. And the Israeli diplomats who spend their careers talking to people and who had thought that Egypt's a really important target had poo-pooed the possibility that Gamal Mubarak wouldn't be the next president of Egypt. Gamal Mubarak did not become the next president of Egypt. And this is diplomats whose job it is to understand who have talked to people, but talking to people doesn't always get you to the right conclusion. I think the other piece of Caleb's question, which is an important piece, is in authoritarian governments, where does public opinion fit into the equation? You know, and again, on the Israel point, Arab publics overwhelmingly have opposed normalizing ties with Israel. And we've seen governments take dramatic steps to normalize ties with Israel. And in some cases, the public opinion has swung behind supporting the government. In some cases, it hasn't. But how do you think about that? I think, you know, ultimately, it comes down to the fact that diplomacy is an art and not a science. What's going to happen in terms of other countries' publics is an art and not a science. I think this may reflect the fact that I was trained as a historian and not as a political scientist. I don't think there's a clear tipping point that you get to. And I think, in fact, governments and people who oppose governments are constantly playing odds, taking risks. And in this very similar situations, you can have very different outcomes based not on some characteristic of the conditions, but on something like chance. So if it's not the greater insight into public opinion piece, 
What would the U.S. gain from having a more accurate picture of Iran and Iranian people? I mean, what do you think the U.S. gains from having people that know or have a better picture of Iran or any country in the region making decisions or informing decisions? This is slightly different to public opinion, but understanding how people in a given society kind of operate when they say something, what do they actually mean? And I thought what Jason Rezaian said about playing poker with Iranians was really funny in that regard, because he said that when someone goes all in, it's usually they have a bad hand. I think that's sort of one example, but I think this is also the kind of thing that if you are able to spend a longer time in a country, in a society, you can better learn how people respond in different situations. And I think that gets at the kind of pressures they're under, it gets at the way decisions are made. And I think that might be even more instructive in some ways than knowing kind of where a public really stands on an issue. Yeah, and the other piece is you can see complexity where somebody with less familiarity wouldn't see complexity. You can see opportunities where somebody with less familiarity wouldn't see opportunities, not in a sort of mechanical way, but in a sort of what sparks can you breathe into a flame that can lead to something different. As I said, the U.S. can't shape other societies, but there are opportunities you can play with. And educational exchange and travel is just one of many. It doesn't solve the problem, but it gives you more tools to work on a problem. Ultimately, the future of Iran is going to be determined by Iranians. But I think what Jason Rezaian was suggesting is there are more opportunities for a positive outcome if you actually understand where the country is, than most people in the United States think there might be. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast.